I think a lot of change is happening. I think more change is coming. And I think just being able to be honest and have these types of like transparent conversations about what the issues are um, is important. And I think for a long time, we've been trained to kind of like hold it to our chest. Um, but I think as, you know, COVID kind of revealed and as all these infrastructures are starting to like, you know, crumble a bit, I think it's like, we're having an opportunity to say, do we need that? <laughs> Did we ever need that? Um, is that where we want to invest our resources and energy? And if the answer is no, you know, like now seems like a ripe moment to, to make a change. Episode seven. Welcome to the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast, a podcast for activists, advocates, and allies working to make our communities equitable through artistry. Each episode, I am joined in conversation by an artist or arts facilitator who has been paving the way in hopes of learning from their expertise and experience. Through action and unity, we can create a better tomorrow today. Let's go. Hello, curious listeners. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Um, we are in for a huge treat. We are joined by Nico Whedon, she, her, um, who is someone that I met when I was working in New Haven, Connecticut about a year ago. Um, and I am just enamored by the work that she does. And I think she is a voice and a perspective that we can all use a little bit more in our life. So I'm so excited to join her in conversation. Nico Whedon is an independent art advisor, curator, educator, and writer. She is also founder and principal of Building Fund LLC, an innovation platform for BIPOC artists, entrepreneurs, and neighbors. Nico currently serves on the Board of Governors at the National Academy of Design and the advisory board for the Lubin School of Business, an adjunct assistant professor at Brown University, Barnard College, and Hartford Art School. She has also guest lectured internationally on topics including the future of museums, art and entrepreneurship, navigating risk in the nonprofit industrial complex, and building artist-led institutions. In 2020, she was appointed as a guide at the Institute of Possibility. Nico's first manuscript on museum citizenship, a toolkit for radical art pedagogy, practice, and participation is slated for publication in spring 2021. The book brings together over 40 pioneering voices from the field to reflect on canon-shifting practice currently taking place within, beyond, and through the museum space. In recent posts, Whedon served as inaugural executive director of Next Haven from 2019 to 20, inaugural director of public programs and community engagement at the Studio Museum in Harlem from 2014 to 2019, and curatorial director of Rush Arts Gallery 2007 to 2010. She holds an MA in Creative and Cultural Entrepreneurship from Goldsmiths College University of London in 2011 and a BA in Arts Semiotics from Brown University in 2006. Welcome, Nico, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is, I'm excited. I'm excited to get into it with you. Yeah, me too. Likewise. So let's get right into it. Um, and we will start today um, by asking some of the core questions that we seek to unpack on the podcast. Uh, so the first is, what is your own personal definition of the word anti-racist? And how does anti-racism factor into your own, your own artistry? Yeah, 
I think that's super helpful as like a, a grounding exercise because I don't know how often I, you know, I redefine the terms that I use, you know, every day. So thank you for the prompt. Um, yeah, you know, I think of it as like direct action against racism. Um, but, you know, I think of it as being nuanced in that there's like both covert and overt <laughs> racism that we encounter every day. Um, so thinking about, you know, covert as being kind of more aligned with like bias and how that shows up and, you know, the overt violence that, that we're all, you know, so accustomed to. Um, and so, you know, on that kind of spectrum, I think it's like, I'm as invested as, you know, in combating the systemic piece as I am in kind of those daily microaggressions that show up uh, in our interactions. I think both have, you know, an extreme effect on our ability to, to just be and to experience joy and to, you know, especially as creative people to create. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I think as a practitioner, um, you know, I say this a lot, but I, I lead with values and anti-racism is certainly one of them. Um, and more and more, you know, especially now as an independent, I'm confronted with this issue of like, am I gonna work with that individual? Am I gonna work with that institution? Um, and so for me, like if anti-racism isn't at the core of their work, it isn't a value that they espouse, then, you know, we're not gonna be partners. <laughs> um, it's as simple as that. Um, and so, you know, as you kind of alluded to in my bio, like I do a bunch of different things. I'm experimenting with how to talk about it under kind of a, a cohesive umbrella. Um, but I think, you know, it's like as a curator, um, my anti-racist work really is in how I center artists, um, you know, within both exhibition and programming platforms um, that a field that is like super racist and super sexist has basically undermined since, you know, it existed. Um, I think as an educator, you know, it's really about kind of trying to expand the scholarship um, around Black art and around Black entrepreneurship. Um, just thinking about the ways in which like history itself is racist <laughs> and often, you know, undervalues or delegitimizes our contributions. Um, I think, you know, as a writer, I add that into my, my practice as like an artistic form more and more. Um, you know, being concerned with what it means to produce scholarship around Black art. Um, yeah, and like to imagine a person in the future, like looking back on the art history of this moment and, you know, working to ensure that it's more representative and more reflective of, of who all is making work today. Um, and then last, but probably like not least, is, you know, working as a consultant um, and getting to kind of from this exterior position you know, support the work of cultural institutions um, and really like updating, you know, like their infrastructures and their practices um, to kind of better meet the times. Um, and so I think because I'm outside of the system, you know, it's easier for me to like hold them to account <laughs> and actually like driving the change that that they're asking for, or saying that they're they're about. Um, and so the artistry piece of the question is interesting because I was talking to someone today and I was like, yeah, I don't think I actively identify as an artist anymore. It's like certainly how I came to the work. Um, I didn't study art history. I came as a practitioner, um, mostly working in photography and sculpture and creative writing. Um, but even, you know, as I become more fully a, a consultant and a writer and educator, you know, I think creativity and like experimentation 100%, you know, drive my, my kind of approach to things. Mm. So good. I really like the duality that you talked about uh, being both within and without organizations and how you're navigating both those spaces. 
Um, and as you said up top, that you do quite a few things. And I think you uh, very beautifully just um, articulated how those things work together. Um, and I think a lot of people listening to uh, our conversations on this podcast also consider themselves to have multiple hats um, and come at the work from different angles. So that's great to hear. Uh, the next question is, does artistry have an inherent social responsibility? And if so, what is that responsibility and to whom? Yes. Um, and I think the reason that I, I feel that way today um, is that, you know, like everything that's intended to circulate um, in the public sphere, I think has a social responsibility, um, especially art. And I think yeah, I think that's because of what I see is like the power and the potential of art. Um, not, it doesn't mean that like art in and of itself is overly like political or designed to provoke or be provocative. Um, but I do think that like art has this superpower, you know, to really like initiate, but then also advance conversations. Um, and, you know, I think artists as like the creator of the, of art and that context, I think, you know, are part of that. And so, yeah, I think, you know, the conversation that art initiates is like definitely part of um, like the social contract of being in and of a community. Um, and so maybe it's like, you know, art's responsibility is to say something um, or to ask a question. Um, and I think especially in like a moment like today where language is like really failing a lot of us, <laughs> um, you know, I think art is again uniquely positioned to like to say something that is beyond words hey friends nicole johnson here i am founder and creative director of Giovanna productions move a nonprofit organization that provides community members with the resources necessary to address social issues creatively and i'm excited to be joining the anti-racist podcast community again but this time via zoom i'll be um, hosting a workshop called edify dismantling systemic oppression seminar uh, we're hosting that on March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope you can join us. We'll be talking about shifting culture through something called the Grounded Theory. I'll also be sharing curriculum underneath the title Edify. Uh, that's really going to help you to understand community organizing, the effects of drama therapy. And then we're also going to be exploring our own problems of practice, addressing social aggressions and discrimination in American workplaces, specifically one of your choice. So it's a really practical workshop. I hope you will join us, and I'm sure that you're going to have uh, a lot of fun. Peace out, friends. What inspired you to use your platform as an artist or now more into the realm of arts facilitation um, and entrepreneurship around art? Um, what inspired you to use your platform to address social injustices um, and problems within our institutions and within our world? And what was your first attempt at realizing um, a sense of art as activism? Yeah, it's funny because I've been doing a lot of reflecting on like my journey. That sounds so cheesy. <laughs> um, but, you know, because people always ask about like your career trajectory, which sounds fake to me because I'm like, I never started at point A and was like, you know, aimed at point B. So I feel of it, you know, more like a, a journey or some sort of like series of concentric circles that like make weird shapes. Um, but yeah, when I look at it from, you know, this kind of point of retrospection, um, yeah, I realize that it's like I've, I've chosen to work in these like mission specific, culturally specific spaces. Um, and, you know, to be like super direct, it's like I've worked in black for us, by us institutions. And I think in a lot of ways, like those spaces 
existing in the world is, you know, they're designed to address social injustice, right? Like they're born out of inequity oftentimes. Um, and so it's the idea that like, you know, why wait for a seat at the table when you can just build the table, right? <laughs> um, and so I think I've taken that for granted, if I'm honest. I think um, I've become so accustomed to working that way and I learned so much working that way that I forget that that's like not the norm. <laughs> you know, that there's like a whole system out there that doesn't center our stories and our narratives and our work in the way that that forest bias institutions do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I need to do a better job of reminding myself of the privilege I have to operate in those spaces. Um, you know, I think that like mission driven work has always and will likely always inspire me. Um, and then, you know, there's like the artists that those institutions are built around and who, you know, I'm constantly drawing inspiration from. And so when I look at their work, you know, I think it's like their work, you know, concerns issues of identity and representation, which I think as constructs are like deeply impacted by, by social justice and injustice. Um, and so, yeah, I think those two things are like interwoven for me. Um, and so all of my platforms are kind of born through those types of spaces. And so, yeah, the inspiration is in like the context and in the artists that the context is built around. Um, and then, you know, I think when I think about like how I show up, if I show up as activist, I don't know that I feel fully comfortable with the label for myself just yet. Um, yeah, I think it's like how I target my professional attention, right? So with my writing, um, you know, thinking about like, how to really draw others' attention to the work of Black artists um, and how to produce scholarship, you know, evidence, criticism, all the things that, you know, the brilliant work deserves um, around their contributions that is like authentic um, and it comes from that community as opposed to, you know, kind of gazing upon it um, from, from a different place. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's part of it. I think using every opportunity and platform that I have to, to redirect resources um, to artists of color, to writers of color, particularly, you know, black women artists. Um, and so, you know, it's funny cause I like think back on all these juries <laughs> that I've served on, you know, where they're like, here's 4 million taxpayer dollars. Like who's gonna get this money? Um, and I often find myself showing up in those spaces as an advocate for, you know, people that are not even considered just for all sorts of, you know, reasons of exclusivity that like just don't work for me. Um, and so I'm often exhausted by my participation in those spaces. Um, but, you know, I continue to show up because that's where some serious decisions get made around, around resources and how they're allocated. Um, and then I think, you know, the last thing I'd say is just like, I learn from artists. And so I think part of what I try to do with, you know, my approach to curation and to programming is like center the artists in those kind of conversations. And so oftentimes the work itself is activist. And so the platform that I build or offer, you know, around the work um, needs to really elevate that conversation that starts and begins with with the artists. So it's an extension of, of their work and of their practice. So you know, serving as a bridge or a conduit or just like a support infrastructure to artists who, you know, are, are doing really important activist work. Um, I want to talk about one of those spaces that you were alluding to being of, by, and for a specific community. Um, but first, 
I heard you use language. Um, well, you explicitly said that you're still grappling with the label or the identity of that of an activist. And then I heard you use advocate. And I'm wondering if you can um, decipher the difference between those two and what it means to show up as an advocate versus an activist in this work in your own words. Yeah, I mean, so I know what an advocate is for me. Like, I think it is, you know, using my voice, using my platform, using my resources, using my energy, um, you know, to support the people, the communities, the the ideas, the institutions that I, I care about. Um, and doing that as a non-transactional, you know, kind of thing, right? It's not like I'm doing that for money <laughs> or anything other than, you know, feeling that it's essential and that it's important. Um, and that, you know, I'm uniquely positioned to do that, right? Um, and I think with activism, you know, and part of my hesitation is like, there's such a, a rigor and like a diligence around the practice of, of showing up um, in spaces that are both like comfortable and uncomfortable. And, you know, well, I think I'm like nearing that. I don't think I have that. I think I, I say no to all kinds of stuff. I'm like, nope, <laughs> I refuse to go into that space and perform that work because I think they need to do that. Or, um, you know, any number of reasons I have that I'm like, it's not actually my best use. Um, my best use is in this other place where, you know, I'm able to X, Y, Z. And so, yeah, I just, there's so many amazing people doing work that like carry the title of activist that I would never ever want to like infringe upon um, or like cast a shadow over that um, as someone who knowingly doesn't show up as often or um, with some of the same energy. And so it's not a perfect answer, but again, like I said, I'm, I'm questioning it. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, so now going into uh, one of those spaces that you were talking about being um, of, by, for, and in a specific community. Between 2014 and 2019, you worked at the Studio Museum in Harlem, which is a seminal cultural institution dating back to 1968. Um, in your time there, you led efforts as the inaugural director of public programs and community engagement, crafting a, quote, collective impact model that centered art, community, and participation in equal measure, end quote. How did you begin to wrap your head around this effort to perhaps change course or find new tactics to center arts, community, and participation in an organization which had almost half a century's worth of norms, systems, and history? And a second question to that is, how did you identify where to steer the work for the museum's specific community, and how were you then able to measure the impact of that new course charted? Well, so, I mean, the Studio Museum is such a special place. Um, and I should always start by saying like how grateful I am to have had the opportunity to like find my voice there and to build and find community there. Um, and I really enjoy like reflecting on this time because I learned so much. So everything I'm presenting is like my takeaways, but the more distant I get from that, that kind of experience, the more I learn, right. <laughs> Even though it's not hands in the work, it's just reflecting on it in new ways. Um, so, so yeah, so the public programs and community engagement department um, didn't exist when I, when I joined the Studio Museum for the second time. I've worked there three times, I'm trying to remember, the third time. Um, <laughs> clearly, I love it. So, um, yeah, so, you know, it, it didn't exist. It, it was a, a kind of a 
seedling inside the education department, but like a full department, you know, kind of focused on engaging adult audiences. Um, you know, it just, it, it was a brand new concept for the museum. And so I was hired to really build that out and to build a team to build that out. Um, and so, you know, as like the new kid on the block, um, one of my first kind of steps was just to, to meet everybody in the museum and to listen, right? Um, to learn like what those practices and procedures were. Um, I think, you know, like with a specific focus kind of on the blind spots too, right? Because I think so often it's like, <laughs> we talk about the successes, but we don't, we don't highlight, you know, where there's room for growth. Um, and to really kind of like produce some alignment for where community engagement work was already happening within the institution. Um, and so one of the first things I did was I conducted, I call it an audit, I don't have a better word, um, but I basically emailed everybody and I was like, hey, I'm new, um, I'm building this new thing and I'm curious, you know, where community engagement lives in your department or where it shows up in your work. And it's, you know, this went to like IT, curatorial, education, development, like every single department within the museum. Um, and so, you know, after receiving like multiple responses that said, you know, it doesn't, like community engagement doesn't live here. Um, you know, I learned pretty quickly that like part of what I needed to do as a first step was to actually like identify the museum as a community in and of itself. Um, and to really kind of commit myself to like mobilizing collaboration inside of the museum, um, you know, centered around this, this notion that as a community, we can then participate in and serve a community. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was like a lot of work, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a lot uh, on paper, but I think just building the trust and the relationships to even have that conversation, um, which for a lot of people was new. And as a result, you know, kind of anxiety producing, um, you know, that probably took about like six to eight months of work, right? And all, all the while I'm building a team to help support that work as well. Um, and so, yeah, then the question becomes like, okay, so we now understand the community of the museum. And so like as a collective body, how do we engage this broader ecosystem of Harlem? Like how do we show up in the community of Harlem? Um, and so, yeah, pretty early in my time, um, I joined and then later led um, this interdepartmental working group, which was called In Harlem. And we were really tasked with like coming up with a strategic programmatic plan for those kind of interim years where the museum would be without a building um, since the museum is still under a construction project. Um, so the working group, you know, we started probably about two years before, two, three years before the museum actually shut its doors to the public and began the construction project. So, you know, a lot of attention um, was going towards imagining this moment of like basically only existing in the community, right? Like there would be no walls to put art on. There would be programs, but they would be in partner institutions. Um, and so, you know, the working group comprised of curatorial operations, almost every museum department actually, um, which was really beautiful, right? Because it's like all of us are having to reimagine our work in this moment. Um, and I think, you know, it was easier for some departments than others. I think education has a habit of working in schools and public programs has a habit of working in the commons. Um, but, you know, curatorial, for instance, right? Like having exhibitions like public art exhibitions <laughs> without walls. Um, that's like a whole other consideration. Um, and so it took a lot of 
yeah, like shared research, shared learning. Um, you know, I really tried to encourage the group to like map, you know, who our partners were in Harlem. What were the relationships, you know, that we could rely on? Where were the relationships that we needed to work on and build trust? Um, and then, you know, kind of mapping like what the community assets already already were, right? So acknowledging that there were plenty of service providers in Harlem already conducting amazing work in the area that the museum was looking to kind of deepen its impact. Um, so it's like, how do you show up as a genuine neighbor and collaborator and not, you know, colonize or overshadow work that's already happening and has been happening for the 50 years that you've been doing something else, right? Um, and so that was like serious soul work. <laughs> that was like serious, you know, self-reflection as an institution work. And it was really, really tough work that I'm like super proud of, you know, all our colleagues that were part of that that initiative because, you know, like we fought, like there'd be moments where we'd be like, you know, that's not art or like, that's not a partnership. And so we had to come to some shared vocabulary around like how we were defining those things. Um, and so to kind of like answer your question about how to know where to steer the work, you know, I think the, the thing that I can point to, because I think there's probably a lot, but the thing that was most helpful was um, I launched the Community Advisory Network, which was a group of 25 local cultural leaders, business owners, artists, um, individuals, like literally just people that all of them were like shared a commitment to to Harlem, right? To making it, you know, kind of remain a dynamic place to, to live and to work and to create, to like make art. Um, and what was so great about that group is that, you know, people felt like they, they were part of the work, you know, it wasn't like being brought a thing and being, you know, asked, like, do you like it? It was, what should the thing be? Like, how do we build a thing that is responsive to what, you know, the needs are as someone who lives here. Um, so it was a real kind of moment of like active listening, um, like shedding some ego in terms of like assuming that what we were doing <laughs> was like relevant at all. Um, and yeah, really embracing like genuine collaboration with Harlem. Um, and I think, you know, just as an institution that like carried Harlem and carries Harlem in its name, I think it's important, right. To really outline like what a citizenship within that neighborhood, um, means and looks like and how and who you're accountable to. Mm. I want to highlight a theme that I I'm hearing. So. Um, our episode is going to be coming out on March 2nd, um, episode 7. And then the next episode for you all curious listeners is going to be um, with two amazing folks from Public Works Dallas um, down in Texas in the Community Engagement Department. Um, and they brought this uh, idea up as well in our conversation about um, not the work not being about colonizing and us going out to do a one-sided transaction with a group that we're seeking to serve, but rather, and I heard you um, talk on this as well, Nico, about really taking in that information and having it be a conversation and an exchange and that being so central and important to the work. Um, so I just wanted to pull out that theme that I've heard now a couple of times. Totally, totally. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I also want to um, just ask you a, a little bit more about um, in this work, which still, um, as an industry, I feel like 
is on the precipice of growing um, and is gaining momentum of community engagement, community partnership, um, et cetera, within the arts. How, how were you able to and how do you continue to um, really measure the impact of this work? Um, something where art is so hard to uh, quantify and to take a measuring stick to. In, in this work of community engagement and centering um, community in, in the work that you did at studio, um, at the Studio Museum, um, and in your other capacities as well, how do you begin to measure the impact of this work? I mean, I think it's actually pretty easy. Like, I think, and this is not a critique of your question. This is a critique of like our field and how we talk about this. Like we talk about it as like, you know, how are we going to figure out if what we're doing is relevant or like if it, if it hit or if it hit as many people as we hoped it would, you know? And it's like, it, from where I sit, it's basically like, if you approach the work in a non-transactional way, then you're building genuine relationships built on trust, right? And so if you have that and you have a question about like how the work is circulating or how it's functioning, then you have a direct line of communication with which to like ask, right? And so I think part of me is like, you know, the the systems that we have that we know don't work is like, you know, the visitor survey or questionnaire, right? Because it's like that presupposes that the person even came to your <laughs> institution, um, right? And so it's like, what about all the people that self-select out of the work of, of your institution because they don't think it's for them or they don't feel represented in that space? Um, and so part of the beauty of the community advisory network is that, you know, that's like 23 times two years to the ground, right? That are like, you know, I saw that uh, sculpture that you put up in Marcus Garvey Park and I heard from so-and-so that like, we were upset that you took it down without telling us. That was like some of the first feedback we got that was so important, right? That was like, okay, people wanna know the timeline around these projects. They wanna know when they're coming, they wanna know when they're leaving so that they can like, be prepared. They don't want, you know, to be kind of like caught on the back foot, wondering how their landscape is going to change. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's an example of like the museum trusting that advisor to be an ambassador for its mission out in the world. Um, but also that ambassador trusting the museum to like take what they learned and integrate it. Right. And not just like be like, oh, sorry. You know, <laughs> it's like, it produces an accountability because it is rooted in an actual series of relationships and that if the trust is broken there then you know the 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 measurement is off right because you're you're not actually rooted in the kind of authenticity of the relationship hello community i'm so excited to share with you about this month's reading community discussion and our community giveaway this month's reading community is supported by The Collective Oakland, and we are so excited to lift up their organization. The Collective Oakland is a Black-owned bookstore founded by Michelle Walton and Wesley Dewan. The Collective Oakland is not only a bookstore, but a gathering place for people to share stories and experiences. Michelle and Wesley feel that others will appreciate and benefit from curated experiences that encourage conversation and self-exploration. For more information about The Collective Oakland, please visit their website at thecollectiveoakland.com or on Instagram at thecollectiveoakland. This month's discussion will take place on Thursday, March 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom, and it is completely free and open to all. We invite you to come and discuss this month's book with us in community. We are also doing a special community giveaway contest happening now until March 7th to give you an opportunity to win a free copy of the book. 
For information on how to enter this contest and the full entry details, please visit our Instagram page at antiracistartist. And a huge thank you to the Collective Oakland for supporting this community giveaway. There is a pattern that I've seen in your work of integrating social entrepreneurship and civic engagement within the art spheres in an ultimate effort to uplift the community served by the work. Obviously, we've just spent a, a few minutes talking about that. The, but this this pattern is rooted in ingenuity and restructuring of systems and norms. And I'm wondering where your inspiration comes from to help point you to where you seek to go. Are there models in which you hold in high regard, almost as like a litmus test to your work? Where, where are you getting your inspiration from? I mean, for the longest time, and I hate to frame it in a negative way, but I'm just going to do it, get it out the way and move on to the, <laughs> the next piece. But you know, I, I'm the kind of person that learns by like pushing against things. Um, and so I often learn what I like and what inspires me by learning what I don't like and what <laughs> like <laughs> pisses me off. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's part of it. I think um, I'm super inspired by artists that adapt their creativity, their innovation, their ingenuity to building contexts and platforms beyond their studio um like that inspires me i think oftentimes because you know artists are like individual people unless they're in a collective you know they grow these ideas um at a pace that is like accessible you know it's not like there was nothing and now there's this huge thing it's like you can see the the process behind how the idea unfolds and how it grows if it grows um and so i actually just recently wrote um, an article for an online journal that was talking about uh, fearlessness in forest bias institutions. And it was looking at two case studies. It looked at um, the Black Artists and Designers Guild as one and uh, the Black School as another, both artist-founded, artist-led organizations. Um, and when I look at the Black School, um, which is founded by Shani Peters and Joseph Poulier, who are two artists, currently based in New York, on their way to New Orleans, basically, as we speak. Um, yeah, I'm just so inspired by how they've scaled this idea up. You know, it started as a program, um, as like a series of kind of educational workshops that were incubated by museums. Um, I think acknowledging, you know, the resource and platform and community of museums. Um, and then kind of slowly over time became all these other things to like so many different communities. You know, they have like the Black Love Fest. Um, they have, you know, they have all sorts of stuff. I'm not going to like <laughs> go totally into it online. But um, yeah. And so I think now it's like five years after this kind of idea for an experimental art school, you know, came to be. They're building a physical schoolhouse, right? It, they didn't have a schoolhouse to this point. Um, it wasn't kind of central to the modules that they're like putting down on the ground. But now that they, you know, have really galvanized a community of support and done some crowdsourcing and fundraising, they're able to build an actual physical schoolhouse in New Orleans. And so I just love that. Like, I think it, it's sustainable. I think it's responsive to the needs of a community. I think it it's like modular on purpose, you know, it's like they can build the school, then they can add on top the theater once they fundraise for that, then they can add on all these other layers that deepen the service but that are all aligned with the mission and the value of the of the organization um and so yeah i think like i wish more like large to mid-sized cultural institutions would embrace 
that kind of like hybridity of form or like a modular approach to whatever it is that they're doing. I, I feel like they're all expanding, but without knowing why. Um, <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think that that inspires me. I think of it as entrepreneurship, um, even though oftentimes it's circulating in the nonprofit sector, you know, like a lot of these things are funded by Ford and Mellon, but I think of them as as entrepreneurial endeavors in terms of the value like proposition and the way the value is talked about. Um, yeah. Last year, you co-founded Building Fund LLC, which is, quote, a production management company that commissions and cultivates place-based projects. These include artist-led initiatives, investor-led social enterprises, and community-led institutions, end quote. The work of your company is in, quote, democratizing access to creativity as a language for self-determination, community leadership, and social impact, end quote, through steps that are identified on your site as ideation, investment, and impact. Due to systems designed to delegitimize BIPOC innovation, it is noted that uh, the prospect of funding a radical idea to scale is seemingly out of reach. Your master's in creative and cultural entrepreneurship um, and, and you also have a lineage of experience in advising, consulting, and leading innovative organizations. So I'm wondering if you can talk about um, some of the most pervasive systemic barriers that you continue to find in your work of decolonizing creative and entrepreneurial spaces um, and the paths in which you are taking to circumnavigate or author those spaces anew. I mean, it's so hard because it's like, <laughs> part of me is like all these systems are are the same right i think so let me back it up i have a career working in primarily the nonprofit sector um and i think you know recently you know stepping uh kind of outside of museums and moving to new haven um to serve as the executive director of next haven you know it was really an experiment in trying to see how for-profit and nonprofit activity might live alongside each other and kind of be housed under the same roof um, and so I've always been interested in like how artists lead that conversation. Um, yeah. And like what platforms are kind of needed, you know, to like support them in their work. And so the more I kind of try and like dissect and understand, you know, how these sectors are different, if they're different, the more I'm like, they're all built with the same money, <laughs> you know, like philanthropy is like, it's, it's all the same money. And so knowing that, you know, it's like, okay, so then what is the actual difference? Um, and so for me, again, it comes back to values, right? Like I think nonprofits are charged with leading with a value proposition and leading, you know, from a space of, of public service. Um, you know, whereas nonprofits, I think, by nature are kind of more empowered to like experiment. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I think I've just been asking a bunch of questions, right? And I think, again, this is me positioning myself not as an expert, but as like a person experimenting in this kind of interstitial space between nonprofit and for-profit um, activity, you know, and it's like, okay, so what constitutes expertise, right? Like what makes a nonprofit an expert in, you know, a certain type of culture? What makes an LLC an expert in a service that they are able to sell? um you know like what evidence is this expertise um is it you know the artist's ability to circulate in the economy or is it like the quality of the conversation that the work evokes um and then it's like you know to get to kind of 
your description of, of the building fund, it's like who has access to expertise? Um, you know, and I'm thinking about the ways in which like this country has been built upon like black creativity and black excellence, but so often the value of that work doesn't actually accrue back to black communities. Um, and so that to me just exposes like a huge flaw in like how all these systems are constructed and how and where they intersect. Um, and so, yeah, I'm like less interested in kind of like defining the future of my work as entrepreneurial and kind of more interested in saying what works from the systems, you know, that we operate within and what doesn't work and how might an experimental approach um, reveal new paths forward um, and new ways of working that are actually more rooted and seeped in the values that brought us here in the first place. We will jump right back in the conversation in just a moment. I am excited to invite you to join the conversation with us on Instagram and Facebook. We are posting sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, some powerful quotes, and announcing workshop and engagement opportunities specifically for this community. We are on Instagram at antiracistartist and on facebook.com slash AAP community. We look forward to having you join the conversation. So in my experience as a predominantly, uh, as a theater artist, um, the consequences and benefits of these systems that you're talking about are clearly seen by surveying who holds the power, right, in dollars. So namely, that shows up as producers and investors in commercial theater um, and in the nonprofit sector as artistic and executive directors, granting institutions and donors, etc. Um, in the art world, which you have lived so um, so much in, how have you slash have you seen these uh, systems materialize? Um, and what forms do they take in that sphere? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a huge question. And so I'll tackle the piece that feels digestible to me today. Um, you know, again, like I think inter-philanthropy. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, when it comes to artists, I think it's like we're often looking at project support, right? So it's like you can apply to have um, you know, an exhibition or um, an event or, you know, some sort of like time-based artistic offering um, supported by, you know, a foundation. But I think more and more what we're seeing is that like institutions and even artists, you know, individuals, like artist entrepreneurs, artist collectives are struggling to just like live <laughs> like in a really basic way, right? And so it, philanthropy seems like it needs to catch up. I think the best way to put it is like, the money needs to go to the place where the most need is today. And if the need is keeping the lights on, then like they should find a way to fund general operating funds, right? We shouldn't be so worried with like, you know, the product of the creativity if there's no home for the creativity to take place. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're getting to a place now where people are like realizing that. Um, I've been a part of a couple different, you know, like institution, intra-institutional um, initiatives where, you know, like a funder will say, okay, I'm gonna give all of you, you know, X, Y, Z amount of money, but my hope is that this initiates a conversation, you know, between your organizations around how you might resource share, power share and collaborate. Um, and I think that's like a really powerful gesture, right? Which is like, it's not just about the money. We know you need the money, but we also know you need the community in order to sustain and to to grow, right? It's not just about, keeping the lights on. It's about like advancing and growing in the culture. And so, yeah, I think, you know, 
I don't think the systems are that different um, between different art forms. I think, you know, most places deal with like uh, lack of diversity in all forms of executive leadership. <laughs> and I think we're seeing the art world really respond in this moment. Um, and, you know, part of my stance has just been to like sit back and observe because I think a lot of it is really problematic um, because, you know, what I see institutions doing is like, inserting people of color into so-called positions of power but not actually changing any of the infrastructure of how the organization is built and operates um so it's like is it setting that person up for failure <laughs> you know is is that person going to be there fighting against a system that isn't actually designed to support their their growth or their excellence um and so yeah i think a lot of change is happening i think more change is coming and I think just being able to be honest and have these types of like transparent conversations about what the issues are um, is important. And I think for a long time, we've been trained to kind of like hold it to our chest. Um, but I think as you know, COVID kind of revealed and as all these infrastructures are starting to like, you know, crumble a bit, I think it's like we're having an opportunity to say, do we need that? <laughs> Did we ever need that? Um, is that where we want to invest our resources and energy? And if the answer is no, you know, like now seems like a ripe moment to, to make a change. Mm. I'm going to get a tattoo of that. Now seems like a ripe moment to make a change. <laughs> Let's get it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with you. <laughs> Great. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your upcoming book on museum citizenship, a toolkit for radical art pedagogy and practice and participation. It's slated to come out very soon. And so my first question, and most importantly, is when and how do we get a copy of your book? <laughs> well, so that's a great question. Um, so my final deadline is May 1st, and it's being published by Roman and Littlefield uh, Publishers. And, you know, it'll be available on the American Alliance of Museums website, um, but also like Amazon and other you know places like that. Um, and yeah, I imagine it's coming out in the summer. I don't know anything about this last leg of the journey. Um, I've just been trying to like give birth to the thing, um, which, you know, has actually been really fun. Um, it's like one of the most exciting things I've ever, ever done. And, you know, I think in part, cause it's like a very collaborative project. Um, it's like, I'll be the author of the book, but in no way is it my book alone. There's like an entire community of practitioners um, that have come together to participate in this thing. And I'm just so honored, you know, to be able to to convene people in this way. Um, and yeah, kind of like I was just saying, it's like super transparent conversations about the state of things um, and where we want, you know, culture to go. Um, and so it really is a toolkit because it comes from our experiences, our professional experiences, but also our experiences as like people inside, you know, these different contexts and institutions, you know, trying to really affect change. Um, and so, yeah, my hope is that it like serves as some form of permission for like a young person or not even a young person, a person, you know, in an institution that's like, you know what, I want to do things differently. Look at this book, like here's all the evidence you need that like we don't have to just recreate and reproduce, you know, the procedures that like have gotten us nowhere. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, so I'll let you know when it comes out, but it should come out probably, um, closer to summer of this year. Well, I'm so excited. 
And last month we started uh, a new program for the podcast community uh, where we're hosting a reading community, a monthly reading group to look at a book um, written on racial justice, written by an author of color and coming together in community and discussing it. Um, last month was James Baldwin's, uh, well, begin again, com, uh, colon, James Baldwin's America and its urgent lessons for our own. Um, and just a little heads up to you curious listeners, you might have just gotten a sneak peek into what one of our future books will be. So mark your calendars. Um, I'm really excited for that. Um, so you you describe the book um, as reflecting on canon shifting practices um, currently taking place within, beyond, and through the museum space. Um, and as you just talked about um, the past year, we've lived through a bunch of norm shattering events that have given us almost a chance to um, re-identify what's working, what's not working, um, etc. And um, so I, I want to close out with a question about moving forward and future vision. Um, as we get closer to returning to a sense of, quote, normal or normalcy, um, with this time and space that we've gotten to reflect over the past year with so many monumentous events that have really sh shaken the zeitgeist of our understanding around a lot of this work, um, what are some of the things, and again, I apologize, this is a huge, broad, open-ended question, and I thank you for running it with it in whatever direction you want, <laughs> but um, what what are some of the things that you are not willing to accept as returning to normal? Um, what, what are some of the things that uh, we can no longer accept as we return to this work? Yeah. I had a lot of fun sitting with this question because um, like you said, it's huge, right? And it's um, it's huge on purpose. And I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, my first instinct was like, this shit was never normal. Like, you know, like there's nothing to return to basically. Um, and then that got me thinking like, well, why, why do I say that? And it's like, well, part of me is like, if we've accepted whatever was pre-COVID as like, you know, the status quo, I think it's, it's only just because we're exhausted. You know, I think we've like literally been run to the point of exhaustion. And by we, I mean, like, people doing this work that, that we've been talking about today. Um, and so, yeah, I hope we don't like return to a place where, I don't know. I mean, so I can name a couple of things. I think it's like, these are things that I think have always been an issue, but I'll just like continue to <laughs> resist them, right? Um, I think one of them is like tokenizing artists um, or even like encouraging artists to tokenize themselves, um, you know, as like a political voice for an institution that isn't actually doing any work to advance change internally. Um, you know, I think about all these kind of solidarity statements that we've seen from cultural institutions and I'm curious to see how they show up in like actual support of black artists and communities. Um, and I don't just mean that as a, as a kind of monetary um, investment. I mean, that is like literally investing in black art and black artists and black communities, not just standing in solidarity. Like, what does that look like? Um, so I think the fact that that's a question on people's minds excites me. I think like, we're not gonna go back to a moment where, you know, people can be vague <laughs> about like, their values. Um, and yeah, I think it'd be great to see people like 
stay active. You know, like I was criticizing myself the other day because it was like after January 20th, I like, I didn't look at the news for five days or something. And part of it was that I, I you know, I was just like, oh, I can sleep for a second. Um, but, you know, it's like to not return to any sense of complacency, right? Like I think people have tapped into like their politics in a way that is important and that I think needs to to stay front of mind, even if there isn't like an issue specifically to address every morning when you wake up and like turn on your phone. Um, I think just staying generally active and engaged um, and part of like a collective energy, right? Like I think is, is really important. Um, so I hope that stays the same. I think it will. Um, and again, I think artists are like, leaders in that conversation um and so really excited to be in proximity to and in community with artists you know in this time mm. i think those are two great pillars not accepting performative allyship and not accepting complacency as we move forward um yeah thank you for that so yeah, each you. yeah each episode we invite our guests to choose an organization to uplift one that is creating a meaningful impact towards a more equitable, inclusive, accessible, and anti-racist future. Nico has chosen One Hood Media, a collective of socially conscious artists and activists who utilize art to raise awareness, seeking to build liberated communities through arts, education, and social justice. And they're an amazing organization um, that I'm so glad you uh, turned me on to to look into. Uh, Nico, would you quickly like to share just a little bit more about One Hood Media and why you chose them to uplift? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like, uh, giving back has become a more concrete thing for me as I like, you know, <laughs> begun to be employed to a point of having like some income that doesn't go straight to bills. Um, and so, you know, trying to develop my own philosophy around how I give back monetarily, right? Because I think I give a lot in terms of my like energy and professional attention and, you know, the work that I do, but in terms of literally, like, taking money out of my pocket and putting it somewhere. Um, yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey for me. And I think, you know, part of how I arrived at One Hood is that, you know, I was thinking about like how I identify where I consider to be home, um, things that were maybe, you know, lacking in like my experience of that place and that I would hope that someone today <laughs> would be able to have a different experience of that that same place. And so, yeah, I was thinking of Pittsburgh as like my spiritual and emotional home. Um, it's where much of my family still is. Um, thinking about, you know, the founder of that organization um, as being someone who I really trust. And I think more and more that's like just so important to me is like not having a single question about the values driving a project or an organization. And so like I trust Celeste, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I know this money isn't like going to do anything super meaningful, you know, as like a singular gesture, but if I can commit to giving it over time, um, then hopefully, you know, it's, it goes some way to supporting the work that is just so important. Um, so yeah, that's why I decided to give to One Hood. Mm, thank you. On behalf of Nico, the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast has made a donation to One Hood Media. You can donate as well and learn more about their work at onehood.org or on Instagram at onehoodmedia, and that's the number one um, for those of you looking that up. So, Nico, I could literally spend days and days chatting with you. You're such a generous wealth of information and vision and knowledge, and I'm so grateful to have had 
this past hour to talk with you. Um, I hope we can find time again to get into some more of the nitty gritty and questions, but um, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast and sharing with our community um, your vision and your generosity. And we are so grateful to have your perspective. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Anti-Racist Artist Podcast is produced by Subido Politico Productions, LLC, hosted by Taylor Ibarra, edited by Andrew Alcarez, and project and community managed by Maricela Juarez. To stay connected with the Anti-Racist Artist Podcast, please visit us at antiracistartist.com, on Instagram at antiracistartist, or via email at antiracistartist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our podcast is made possible with the support of folks like you. You can get exclusive content and access to the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash antiracistartist. Theme music features vocals by Esteban Suero, Forrest Van Dyke, Kennedy Kanagawa, Jameson, Minji Kim, oh.